I would expect that uh, most all of us here this morning have events in our lives that we regret. Uh, Maybe a relationship that we weren't our best selves in, uh, a really bad decision we made, or maybe a choice that we didn't make, or maybe it's messing up people's names whom you're baptizing. Those uh, types of regrets can continue to resonate in our lives to varying degrees. Maybe it causes us to wince, maybe even physically to wince a little when a particular memory resurfaces. Or maybe it's a dull ache that we carry with us daily. Most of us have events that we wish we could go back and do differently. Some people are so haunted by things that they have done that they actually abandon the lives that they have and try to start over completely somewhere else. Our text for this morning speaks to those issues and more. And it does so in very powerful and dramatic language. In this part of the letter, Paul states things very clearly in the language of life and death. Paul understands from his own personal experiences how thoughts about our past can influence our actions in the present, for ill or for good. Specifically, Paul wants followers of Jesus Christ to know that being a Christian means that our old lives under sin and death have been killed off. And we have started a truly new life. When talking about our old lives, Paul's referring to our lives before knowing and believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. In the passage that happens just before the text for this morning, Paul had made the point that all human beings uh, were under the reign of sin and death until Jesus entered into our world. And the same is true, essentially true, for individual lives. Once a person understands who Jesus Christ is and entrusts themselves to him, they die to life under the dominion of sin and death. That's the way Paul refers to it most of the time. They die to that life, that previous life. Personally, I believe it's even better to speak of it the way that he does in verse 6. In verse 6, we hear, For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus, so that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. That our old life has been crucified, has been killed off, I think we need to hear it stated in such strong language so that we have no doubts about our situation. Episcopalian priest and theologian Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. All the things we find upsetting about ourselves, the habits we cannot seem to shake, the personality traits that get us in trouble, the secret obsessions and perversions that we struggle to hide even from ourselves, all of this has been put to death. 
All of this has been nailed to the cross and died there. Paul goes further in proclaiming that our old lives have not only been killed off, they've been buried. And Paul uses this imagery of baptism to emphasize this point. In verse 3 and into 4, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In Paul's time, as I was saying earlier, all baptisms were done by fully immersing a person into water, river, a lake, or the sea. The symbolism was profound. We have to remember that at the time that Paul was writing, this was all new. This whole story about this guy named Jesus uh, being the anointed one, the story of, of him being crucified and buried in a tomb, and then three days later being resurrected to new life. All of this was being told to people for the very first time. So the people being baptized because they believed the story were adults who had been living a very different understanding of life until hearing about Jesus. Baptism was their way of, of declaring for themselves and their community that they were living an entirely new way. William Barclay um, does a great job of drawing out what Paul is declaring with this imagery of baptism. He writes, baptism marked a dividing line in a person's life. In baptism, a person came to a decision which cut their life in two. A decision that often meant that they had to tear themselves up by the roots. A decision which was so definite that for them it often meant nothing less than beginning life all over again. Baptism, therefore, was by total immersion. When a person descended into the water and the water closed over their head, it was like being buried in a grave. When they emerged from the water, it was like rising from the grave. Baptism was symbolically like dying and rising again. The person died to one kind of life and rose to another kind of life. They died to the old life of sin and rose to a new life of grace. They went down into the water, a man or a woman of the world, and rose a man or a woman in Christ. And as I was saying, for those of us who weren't fully submersed in baptism, our Hebrew First Testament scripture reveals to us the truth that the form of baptism isn't the important part. God gave Ezekiel a vision of what happens when Jesus comes into our lives in whatever form. He gave this, God gave this vision to Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and that spirit will move you to follow my decrees. The truly life-giving action is God entering into our hearts and renewing our spirits 
which can happen even without a formal baptism. For Paul, it is the equivalent of killing off this moment when Jesus comes into our life. It's the equivalent of killing off our old sin and death-dominated lives and starting a truly new life. Again, verses 6 and 8 through 8. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And that is what Paul wants for all of us, to live a life alive to God. And this is what Paul wants because this is what Jesus wants for the whole world. When Jesus commanded his followers, go and make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. For Jesus, baptism represented that change of life that comes when the reign of sin and death is broken and a person is welcomed into the life of the triune God. And the teaching them to obey all that I have commanded is the revealing of what it looks like to live alive to God, a life full of peace and justice and beauty. We are not beholden any longer to the life dominated by sin and guilt and regret. All of that is dead and killed off. We are free to live a life of love and compassion, of joy and hope. There's a great summary of our lives that I read in a comment uh, from the Expositor's Greek New Testament. To be in Christ is the source of the Christian's life. To be like Christ is the sum of the Christian's excellence. And to be with Christ is the fullness of of the Christian's joy. Sounds great, huh? But is it real? <laughs> is it true? I mean, not in a theoretical way, but in a lived reality. I find sometimes reading Paul can actually be a little bit discouraging because he so often makes it sound like this death and rebirth are immediate and complete in just kind of one fell swoop. In part, I think that's just his dramatic personality, but in part, it's also because that was fairly close to his actual experience, his own personal experience. Paul had been someone who, well, as Saul, known as Saul then, had been someone who had been persecuting people who were following Jesus. He was literally trying to have followers of Christ killed. And then he had this extremely dramatic encounter with the risen Jesus in the road on his way to Damascus. And from that point on, he became an apostle for Jesus Christ, one of the great tellers of the story. So it was essentially for him an immediate and complete transformation of life for the rest of his life. But the poet Tanya Runyon, I think, eloquently reveals the reality for most of us uh, in her poem called The Road to Damascus, in part because she's contrasting herself with Paul. 
Mine is not a syntacular story of stumbling up the steps to the heroin clinic, prostituting my way through prom night, or mangling my children in the slot machine. No crazy here. Just a silent road to Damascus. A pinhole light through a curtain that no Ananias would heal. My persecution was too weary for fame, a low-grade virus burying Christ under the sweaty blankets of winter. I have sinned, I said. I want eternal life, I said. That was the moment. I wanted nothing but God. I wanted a cheeseburger. I wanted nothing at all. Finally, I wanted it settled. I folded my hands and spoke to the carpet. I folded my hands and spoke to the Lord. I woke up and felt no different. I woke up and my life came to an end. If only it could be as easy as Paul to curse one day and bless the next. Repent and change direction for good, not this cycling of faith. A little light in the morning, lifting a hand in prayer, then dozing to the bore of the spirit. My body doesn't cling to Philippian prison bars or risk martyrdom, but saunters through the valley of the shadow of ease. God saved the Corinthians from their temple orgies, rescued serial killers from their incinerated hearts. Can he save me again? A woman too laggard to lose any hope, too blind to collapse in a flash of light. Sounds a little bit more probably like most of us than Paul's sudden and dramatic. But even Martin Luther, the great reformer of the faith, has encouraging words for those of us closer to Ms. Runyon than to Paul. Luther wrote, we are not found in a state of perfection as soon as we have been baptized into Jesus Christ and his death. Having been baptized into his death, we merely strive to obtain the blessings of this death and to reach our goal of glory. Just so, when we are baptized into everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven, we do not at once fully possess its full wealth of blessings. We have merely taken the first steps to seek after eternal life. Our spiritual life is a matter not of experience, but faith. No one, it's pretty powerful words from Martin Luther, no one knows or experiences the fact that they live spiritually or are justified, but they believe and hope this. Paul does give us one very helpful hint in how to internalize this life. Um, he gives this to us in the final verse, verse 11. He writes, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The voice translates this verse. So here is how to picture yourself. Dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is something that we can actually practice. Whenever we have a memory or a desire or a thought that comes from the realm of sin and death, visualize it. 
close your eyes and visualize it nailed to the cross and dead. Visualize it killed off, no longer having any power. And then open your eyes alive to God. Be alive to God in our lives, to signs of love and beauty and peace and joy and kindness all around us. And be a part of creating more of the life of God in our world. In the words of Wendell Berry, practice resurrection. Practice the resurrected life. None of us live perfect lives. We all have regrets, things we wish we could undo. And the truth is, we will continue to mess up. Yet Paul is trying to reassure us of an even more important truth, that when we trust in Christ, the control of sin and death in our lives, the control is killed off. We have begun a truly new life. Know that this is true. Visualize this as true for our lives. And then practice resurrection. Amen.